We recently read a great piece on Medium called Finally an Answer to Why So Many People Voted for Trump, which is a question we've honestly been asking ourselves as well. The author notes, Trump is definitely not virtuous, but he doesn't pretend to be. He never claims to be morally superior to other people. He's shameless in all of his flaws, and it gives comfort to people in a world that's constantly telling them they're not good enough. The author also refers to a podcast episode by Sam Harris called The Key to Trump's Appeal, in which Sam says he, which is Trump, offers a truly safe space for human frailty and hypocrisy and self-doubt. He offers what no priest can credibly offer, a total expiation of shame. The medium piece goes on to say that if we consider that any president becomes a de facto role model for the country's people, we might get a sense of Trump's real appeal. He says, you don't need to feel ashamed about who you are or what you do. Now, this was what was interesting, because that stands in contrast to the anti-Trumpers who say you're either with us or you're against us. People on that side are saying that if you aren't with us, you must be racist or homophobic or bigoted or sexist. The argument here is that in this position, the left, you are full of judgment and moral high horsing, saying that you're just an incredibly guilty person if you happen to be white and cisgendered, especially if you're a straight male, not just for all of your own baggage, but for all the evil things your forefathers did in the creation of this country. Basically, given these positions, each side is driving the other side crazy. And what we need to do instead is to listen. So with that in mind, we bring you a repeat of last year's episode on having these sorts of confrontational, difficult conversations with your family. Only this time, speaking up is not an option. We've seen the pain, the horror, the murder, the mistreatment of so many people during 2020. We have to speak up. And before then, we have to listen to the human beings we sit across, whether it's a real table or a virtual screen. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be a little more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we're here with a special holiday, shorter episode called How to Talk About Race and Politics During the Holidays, with our working title being Fun for the Whole Family. Because <laughs> it's really so much fun. Yeah, nothing says like a good holiday event, like, you know, a heated discussion about politics and race. I needed this during Thanksgiving because that's when my whole family was here, except we did not have that many conversations about this sort of stuff, so... Yes. Well, as you listeners are well aware, we love difficult conversations, especially when they come from a place of educating and discussing viewpoints with respect. But if you think about what we talk about when we gather as families and, you know, especially now as we're heading into a big holiday season and in particular in white families, we often spend the vast majority of our time together trying to avoid any topic that might be considered a hot button issue and any topic that may result in anything more than the harmony that we are all trying to achieve. I mean, let's be real. No one's trying to bring on a family feud at the holidays. I totally get it from a visceral perspective. I do have a family member in my extended family who I love very much and who, from a political perspective, I often disagree with. And it can get heated depending on the news sources somebody may be watching or perspectives we have. And to be honest, sometimes I find it difficult to have a conversation because depending on those topics, I don't feel as informed to push back. 
Have you ever had that? I mean, you are Miss Nerd. What was the episode when we called you Nerd like four different times? Like all of them? Oh, you mean in your head or out loud? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I really sometimes have a hard time because I have a gut feeling about something. And it's really hard to argue and have conversations about stuff like this when I don't feel as informed. And so sometimes I shrug my shoulders and, okay, I'll have to come back to you on this one. But all of it over the years in this particular instance has made people around us feel uncomfortable to the point where they have jokingly banned us from talking about politics together, <laughs> depending on the gathering. So anybody else out there, raise your hand if you're like listening and you're like, I relate. I mean, who is that one family member or when is that one gathering or topic that seems to get everyone on fire? Yeah. I think we probably all have something that we can think of. I think so. So it sounds like everyone really has that experience. But Ellen McGirt from Fortune Race Ahead and a few others have recently asked the question, why do we avoid these topics then? And are we really missing an amazing opportunity to share viewpoints and get people talking about topics that may never be discussed in mixed company? And by that, we mean people who don't share the same viewpoints. It's always easier to avoid, let's say, racist family members and to ignore what's happening in American politics, even if it's continually all you think about. However, an article written by Jordan Ull in 2016, right after President Trump was elected, argues that easier isn't always better, and it's definitely not how anything is going to change. One of our favorite music lines from the Bare Naked Ladies, Lovers in a Dangerous Time, is this quote, nothing worth having comes without some sort of fight. And I feel like that fits here because isn't, I mean, okay, maybe it's not totally relevant, but it kind of felt like it fit here. This idea of things that mean something don't always come easy. You have to make an effort for it. Maybe you have to get a little uncomfortable because it seems like it's that exact type of selfish passivity, the complete and total avoidance of any hot button issue at, at family gatherings that begins, if not accelerates the normalization process for and this is in the article's words, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, and other discriminatory behaviors that plague our nation today. It's passive indifference to unsavory ideas, people, and beliefs of our family members that enable them and incubate them. So just as the uneasy silence, this is again from the article from your dad's sole quote, black friend is used as justification for his support for Donald Trump, your silence at the dinner table will be used to assuage any concerns about racial bias. And he goes on to know very few people, if at all, change their mind on political issues after Twitter spats. So it begins with us, you, me, all of us, talking to our families, educating them and showing them kindness and compassion in the process. Anybody feel like that, too? Because truly, I think I had a conversation. You'll know my political viewpoints on this with this. My conversations with that person have always been respectful. And I did gain some perspective, some ground when I mentioned the pussy grabbing comment and how that was offensive fundamentally to me and to my children who this person loves very much too. And they gave a little ground. They were like, I can see where that is not acceptable. And I felt really like glad for that uncomfortable conversation because I felt like we were able to communicate better. I think that's great because it's someone that you guys care about each other. And it's a very personal conversation in that front, right? It's not some sort of faceless social media discussion, you know, where you're stating viewpoints, but you really felt heard, I think. Right. Yeah. And again, going back to the stuff we always talk about, relationships are the cornerstone of our long-term health and happiness. You can't have a relationship without being in exchanging conversation with them, right? I feel like you enter 
conversations to get to know people better. And these are just some of the other parts that are revealing fundamental beliefs, ideologies, information, all that sort of stuff. We have to be willing to engage in that in order to fully appreciate the person and build a well-rounded relationship with them too, much as it can be really uncomfortable. Yeah. So how do we do this? And going back to that article by Jordan Ull, he gave us some tips. So even though, keep in mind, this article was written in 2016, a lot of these tips still resonate, even painfully so, in this, the 2019 holiday season. So a couple of things. While passing the green bean casserole to your grandpa, remind him that it's white homegrown terrorists, not Muslims, that have killed more Americans than, quote, jihadists since 9-11. I like it. Yeah. So after your casually racist aunt finishes her fifth glass of Pinot Grigio and tries to say that African-American voters didn't turn out in 2016 like they did for Obama, gently explain to her that 14 states have enacted new voter suppression laws and remind her that red states and conservative Supreme Court justices completely gutted the Voting Rights Act which is something we've discussed on the podcast and still is true. So when your mom calls undocumented immigrants thugs and criminals, kindly inform her that most immigrants are actually women and children fleeing violence and seeking safety. But instead of helping them, the United States government is locking them up in family detention centers or even cages and making them go through emotionally draining, credible fear interviews. I'm going to take the next one. Yeah. When your dad laughs off Trump's sexism... Tell him that no woman should ever have to deal with being objectified like that and remind him that women still are being paid 70 cents for every dollar a similarly qualified man makes. And that's probably white women or an average of women, not all the different shades of women that we've talked about with the equal payday conversations. True. If someone negatively mentions protests in the wake of the 2016 elections, remind them of our sordid history and the outpouring of hate in 2008, which was when Obama was elected for his first term. Don't even let someone try to downplay the significance of the Dakota Access Pipeline protests while simultaneously observing a holiday in which Native people warmly accepted uninvited immigrants from Europe, which is the one that we just celebrated recently. And yes, the Washington football team's name and the Cleveland baseball team's logo are very much racist. It's not honoring them when they actually want the name changed. And I'll make the comment that if you want to hear that straight from the mouth of a Native American, please listen to our interview with Crystal Echohawk, because that was actually talked about on that episode as well. Yeah. Before everyone rushes to the couch for football or basketball, if it's Christmas, and post-meal naps, disprove your relatives' false narratives of minorities committing most of the crimes by showing them that in the most diverse cities in the country, hate crimes are going way up while other crimes have fallen. And the article writer closes by saying, this may be one of the few times you're able to see your family members throughout the year. And now, thanks to self-segregation, discriminatory hiring practices, and how we consume news through Facebook, we've created new forms of systemic oppression along with bubbles for white America to live in. So what is, yeah, this is interesting, right? Because I've seen so many, we call in some of the areas that we live in Denver, we're in a bubble. What does he mean, white bubbles? I mean, we've been talking about it a lot, but it's helpful to put it in a historical context. And fortunately, we don't have to do that on our own. In a great recent piece called, It's Your Responsibility to Challenge Bigoted Relatives Over the Holidays from Teen Vogue. And yes, we said Teen Vogue. They are writing some real articles over there. Jen Jackson, the author who is black, queer, and a feminist, breaks down for us and for everyone the history that we can't get away from in terms of segregation. You want to talk a little bit about uh, the court cases and stuff? 
Yes, you know, I love that. In 1954, the Brown versus Board of Education decision of the Supreme Court declared the separate but equal doctrine unconstitutional. So this formally, and this is sort of a recap for those of you who have been listening to our past episodes, but this formally ended segregation in the United States, integrating public schools, lunch counters, water fountains, buses, and all other public spaces in the country. But these legal changes didn't fundamentally change the structures of discrimination and segregation in the United States. So even though black-white segregation may be decreasing over time, research shows that white Americans still actively engage in white flight or moving away from neighborhoods with non-white populations, especially if they are middle class. And this has very important implications for income and wealth distribution. As writer Ta-Nehisi Coates notes in a 2014 article in The Atlantic, the average per capita income of Chicago's white neighborhoods is almost three times that of its black neighborhoods. Neighborhood segregation means that many white Americans don't see many non-white people as members of their communities and certainly not as their next door neighbors. I mean, she goes on to talk about how this isn't just seen in physical location, but in who our friends are. I mean, Sasha, you and I have talked about that, too, about our difference, like the different makeup of our friend groups. But in this article, she says white Americans are also isolated in their social groups as research has found that they are the group least likely to have diverse friends and peers. According to a 2016 analysis from the Public Religion Research Institute, the average white American has a network of friends that's 91% white. The rest, the combined 8%, is black, Asian, Latina, mixed race, other, and of, quote, unknown racial background. So take a second and think about if you're white and listening to this, whatever your background is, what is your percentage of friend makeup. Because the same study found that black Americans on average have a friend network that's 83% black, 8% white, 2% Latina, 0% Asian, and roughly 7% that's mixed, other, and of unknown race. So not only are white Americans often isolated by race by where they live, they're unlikely to be surrounded by friends and loved ones who are non-white. So if anti-racist white people do not muster up the courage to challenge their bigoted family members this holiday season, no one else will be there to do it. Yeah. And I think this ties back to a lot of reasons, including why we started this podcast, because these forms of isolation mean that many white Americans don't have to confront racial differences in their personal and daily lives. Because think about it, if you don't know any non-white people, either your neighbors, your friends, your kids' classmates, then these aren't things you think about. Because of white privilege, many of them can simply opt out of difficult conversations that challenge internalized stereotypes or beliefs about people who aren't like them. And these attitudes are shaped from an early age. As the University of Rhode Island history professor Eric Loomis put in in a recent piece in the Boston Review, when citing a study of white school children in a specific town in the Midwest, quote, almost none develop a meaningful critique of structural racism, question their own privilege, or think seriously about how to combat racial prejudice, end quote. They may oppose overt racism, he continued, but they also see themselves as deserving of every advantage they have received. So when you basically opt out of conversations about difference, and when you see yourself as deserving and someone else is not deserving, some might say, well, so what? What does it actually do? It means that you're putting our society in a position where part of our population does not feel like they belong. If you're not willing to talk about it, then that means it's kind of like saying, oh, I don't see color. Well, then you're basically saying, I don't see your entire lived experience right now. And I mean, maybe a lot of you have heard of Brene Brown, researcher and author Brene Brown said that a group of middle schoolers, I mean, think about when you're in middle school, middle schoolers can pinpoint perfectly the difference between belonging and fitting in. Fitting in is when you want to be part of something. Belonging is when others want you. Mm, I love that. 
right? As much as we want to feel like we belong and others wants us, it's even more critical to know that we matter, that we have something to offer and our contribution is seen and appreciated. And this comes from the world of positive psychology. But Dr. Isaac Prilotensky of the University of Miami defines mattering as feeling valued by others and knowing that we add value to ourselves and others. Slight tangent, but not surprisingly, countries that are formed with social supports in place where people are made to feel like they matter and are safe. So you're thinking places like Canada, Japan, like places with health insurance or supports in place where everyone matters. These countries are markedly happier. So think about that for a second. When you're not acknowledging someone in conversation, when you're not willing to have conversations like that, you're saying a large population does not matter. The way that affects all of us is that if everyone in our country feels like they matter, as a country, we're likely to feel happier and have the systems in place. That helps all of us. And so from this article, there was an article in Positive Psychology News. They said, well, how do you make people feel like they matter? Yes, obviously you want to have these race conversations, but there's simple ways through the holidays when you're walking through your day to day, you can do that. You can say, what's your name? How do you pronounce your name? You can acknowledge those around you, right? If you're in an elevator, you can say, hi, you're in a shared space. You can hold the door. When you're walking down the street, look someone in the eye and say, hello. The other way is to pay attention to your thoughts, your body language and your actions. And critically to our topic here, you can say, oh, I never thought about that. Can you tell me more? basically inviting someone to teach you a little bit more about their expertise, their experience, or their perspective. I think that's so great because it's such a small thing, right, in your life, but that is a direct impact on someone else. And, you know, that sort of leads to being more open to having these interactions. And that's something that we often talk about on the podcast and with each other, Sarah, right? Like opting out of difficult conversations, not want having to have any tough conversations or not even having people around us who look different than us to challenge those preconceptions that we may have. So... Given all of that, where do we go from there? And Jen Jackson acknowledges that this is messy. She says the issue of racism is tangled up with a host of other issues, including gender and sexuality, class and education. Starting the conversation can seem daunting, but it can also be a gateway to a host of other meaningful interactions about systemic prejudices and inequality. So, for example, while support for trans rights is increasing in the United States, transgender people still face an epidemic of violence and a history of mistreatment by police. Because many cisgendered people don't have out transgender friends, the issues facing trans communities rarely show up in their day-to-day lives and conversations. This form of cisgender privilege closely resembles white privilege in that it allows cis people to simply avoid understanding the ongoing struggles faced by trans people in this country. I mean, it's good in some ways that we are at the time we're at now, because the internet, while for all its flaws, it's also teeming with guidelines and suggested methods for talking to family members about racism this holiday season. There are also plenty of practical tips and recommendations for supporting queer and trans folks this holiday season. I'm going to make a quick plug. My friend and a great human being, Dr. Ron Holt, has a coloring book to uh, called Pride, a book and coloring book to support people who are queer or who have not come out or who are alone this holiday season because their family hasn't accepted them. So that's another set of resources out there that you can find. But what it mostly boils down to is not being passive. I'd like this phrase, but like quietly forking away at your yams and green beans while Aunt Susan spews hateful messages about black people, immigrants, or like gender nonconforming people, they, that will not change the status quo at all. Ignoring it doesn't change anything. It's just another way of allowing these toxic ideas and beliefs to permeate through generations and social networks every day. So how about stepping up to do something about it? 
So, okay, you might have heard this and think this might work and not cause a total dumpster fire at your holiday dinner. I promise, like, you know, I just can't get rid of this word for 2019. (laughs) It's almost 2020. (laughs) I know, I'll work on it for 2020. Okay, but how does that happen? So we came across another article called How to Talk to People Who've Been Through Some Shit. Yeah, that's the actual title. That while it could be interchangeably used for your Aunt Peggy who was in a car accident or Uncle Fred who lost his favorite gloves in the snow... So basically, the bottom line is it doesn't have to be a big deal to start this conversation. It doesn't have to be a big, serious trigger for this conversation. But you use the same tactics or questions regardless of what type of conversation you want to have. And the author of that article notes that a simple how are you can address the elephant in the room without expressly doing so. So if they mentioned, you know, in response to that, that they got hit by a bus this year, then it's safe to follow up. And he also suggests maybe go light on the advice because advice usually benefits the person giving it more than the one receiving it. And Ellen McGirt sort of full circle back to, you know, as she sort of posed this question in the first place, her approach is simple. Use facts to counter bigotry, speak plainly and listen sincerely, keep it brief, be kind and empathetic, and be prepared to move on without holding an obvious grudge. And these words have helped me navigate more than I can possibly say. Here's how I've learned to think about these things. I like it. Yeah. Time to get ready for our holidays, folks. Happy holidays. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Woman Podcast, and we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 